Hey everyone, here is part two of the roundtable, Theory as Reproduction, Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia. If you haven't heard the first one, check it out on our SoundCloud or our website. Thanks again to Dr. Ben Hegarty, Dr. Carly Schuster, and Dr. Shiori Shakuto for making this collaboration happen. So please enjoy part two of this special roundtable discussion. We're back for the second segment of our 2019 AAS, Australian Anthropological Society panel, Theory as Reproduction, Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia. Ben? So for this roundtable, um, and in this second segment, we asked our participants to respond to a series of questions really on the relationship between their own personal experiences as feminists, as women, as anthropologists working in Australia, doing field work, uh, conducting PhDs and kind of forging relationships since the 1970s and into the 1980s. Some of the highlights from the second segment include issues such as intersectionality, including class and ethnicity that helps shape feminist anthropology, and also the questions of the separation between the field and the personal life that affects the dynamics in the doing of feminist anthropology. Great. Hope you have, uh, well, enjoy your lesson. Francesca Mullen. Francesca is a professor of anthropology at the ANU. After completing a doctorate research on Native American and settler communities, she conducted research in Northern Australia, a research that has laid a foundation for her enduring association with that region, um, concerned with Australia's Indigenous-Non-Indigenous relations, as well as with the wider Indigenous issues. She then conducted fieldwork in highlands of Papua New Guinea, researching on segmentary society, sociality, and subsequently she conducted research in southern Germany on transformations in farming and the government's measure to mitigate the impacts of change. She remains committed on ethnographic fieldwork field work in all of these areas. Francesca, whenever you're ready. Thank you. And thanks very much to all of you organizers and discussants. And I think also in this context, thanks to Phyllis Cabery and Mari Ray, who are two women who uh, sort of uh, really began to open up the possibilities of fieldwork in Northern Australia, which is what I'm going to talk about. Now, the organizers suggested that we think about gender as shaping the ways that knowledge is produced and uh, in relation to fieldwork also. So I want to talk about two dimensions of my experience in Northern Australia that I now see as related, but only relatively recently did I come to see that, see that and to appreciate why it must, may be so. So the first thing that I uh, want to talk about is the fact that as a young woman, a single woman at the time when I went to Northern Australia, I found myself after a fairly short period of time, able to make quite good um, sort of, let's call them familial and field-based relationships with senior men 
and with uh, quite a range of, of senior men in various kinds of kin relationships to me, as fathers, as brothers, as cousins, and so on. And it has to be said, this was in the context of, of wider relationship with their families, but I think it was notable that I had quite a number of these sort of uh, good ties with, with these senior men. That I could make such relationships with women was also true, but it was more expected. I would have thought that was possible from the outset. The second thing I wanted to talk about is that there was, and I think there has been for some time, ongoing and considerable shift in what many indigenous and non-indigenous people and authorities would see as significant community level responsibilities to women. So it's these two things, the possibility of having these relationships with men and the sort of shift of responsibilities to women. So that's what I want to reflect on here and sort of tie myself into this picture. Now, um, I have to skip over many things in view of time constraints, but I'll just say when I began field work in Northern Australia, I would have said that there were masculinist ideologies regularly espoused by indigenous people with regard to a whole range of things, with, re with regard to ceremony, with regard to knowledge, with regard to secrecy, and with regard to various kinds of uh, social relationships. So in that part of the world, there is a kind of avoidance between adult uh, brothers and sisters. And in those relationships, people in them always talk of respecting each other and so on. But there are lots of ways in which male priority is evident in those relationships. So I would say, having to skip over all that ethnographic detail, that in a Gramscian vocabulary, that hegemony, the normalization of deeply embedded, culturally delineated relationships between kinds of people as subordinate and dominant, here along gender lines was very overt in these indigenous communities. But there was a lot of evidence that things were complicated and, and uh, a lot more complex than that. For instance, in the 70s when I was first there, young women were drinking more than they had. Uh, in the past, this led to some changes in the nature of sexual relationships and availability. Uh, many married women clearly had more um, central domestic roles with men being less responsible and less present. Many and most public gatherings were regularly characterized by gender separation in seating arrangements, in readiness of people to speak and emotions of shame were regularly articulated, and I think they were experienced if gender separation was not seen to be the case among indigenous people. Um, there was also some evidence that women were gaining stronger positions in the eyes of state authorities. And here, there are a couple of examples in this longer little paper, but I, I don't have time to go into them. I'll just briefly name them. The, in the regional town where I've done a lot of work and around which I've done work. Uh, they were, the authorities were making available houses in town for the first time to indigenous families. And they were picking families on the bases that you might expect state authorities to do so. They were looking for responsibility, they were looking for care of children, they were looking for evidence of cleanliness and hygiene and all these things. And in all of these ways, the principal rental holders in all of the cases in a little circuit street where houses were allocated were really women. They were senior women and not men. Secondly, I spent a year living uh, in a 
camp at Elsie Station, which is on the Roper River, southeast of uh, Catherine. And there, something went on, which I didn't really see as part of a larger movement, but I now see it as such. Namely, the people, uh, the indigenous people who lived at Elsie had been kicked off by the station management. Basically, they'd been dumped in town and told not to come back. Uh, that they were no longer needed. So there was this sort of downturn in the pastoral industry whereby stations were trying to divest themselves of workers. Well, they formulated a plan to go back and start a camp uh, some kilometers downstream from the main Elsie uh, Station homestead. The main ideas man for starting that camp was a man by the name of Clancy Roberts who had been trained uh, in administration at Bagot in Darwin, and uh, he helped the people in the camp think about how to make that shift and how to establish themselves and how to start trying to get facilities, a generator, a place to, to, to camp, and so on. Um, now, he was the, the main driver initially of this kind of shift, but like so many others after him and into the present, including only a few weeks ago, um, he was killed in a car accident on the Roper Road. Alcohol was involved. Those who were left as the effective managers of the camp were his two sisters, who at that time were in their 30s. After his death, they were the ones effectively in residence, and they worked toward establishing the camp for about 80 or 90 people who lived there. They remained there. They worked uh, to do this and establish this camp to get facilities, to make all the links with uh, the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and, and so on. They kept the camp together. They fought for its facilities. Eventually, they helped others fight to get a secondary school started in the community. And they did this for decades. And it was sort of their, their, their pride to do this. Now, at the time, I didn't really see the Elsie case as representative of wider generational change in, in, in gender relations and other ways, but I do now see it as, um, you know, a, a case which uh, reflected a much broader kind of transfer in many uh, communities to, of major responsibilities to women, to establish camps, to, to pursue all that needs to be pursued. Um, uh, I think that that was going on in a number of ways in quite a number of the communities around me. Um, the, um, the dynamics of, of change were visible, I think, all around us. These capable women were often married to less capable and less socially committed men. Um, also, there were the problems at the time of alcohol abuse, so you had lots of younger women married to older men who were essentially seeking to get out of these marriages and to sort of try to make a life for themselves. Um, the, the sort of declining position, I think, of senior men, there should be some exceptions noted for some generally quite senior men who retained ceremonial reputations and roles that were attributed to them as of high and unassailable significance in those communities. But they were these... Um, this role that they had was not readily convertible into or matched by their everyday performance of socially valued roles. Now, I think this kind of shift in the position of senior men 
was especially visible and uh, rapidly changing in the town context. This was a time when people were being driven off pastoral stations, more and more people were coming into town. You got some senior men who remained socially and communally engaged, but many were victims of alcohol abuse. That was not quite as common yet among women at that time. So let me quote a couple of peri-urban non-indigenous farmers around Catherine who reflected with me on their relations to their workers. One peri-urban non-indigenous farmer who had regularly employed workers mainly at the CSIRO camp in town said to me, five years after the grog came in, all my best workers were dead. Another peri-urban farmer told me that he had, on a regular annual basis from the 1950s to 1965, hired about a dozen Aboriginal workers, mainly men, who came with larger families, so he usually had about 30, 35 people living at his place. But once that large-scale uh, peanut producers came into the picture around Catherine, big producers like Kingaroy and so on, farmers like himself could no longer compete and he had to let all his workers go. So change was occurring in farming as well as in the pastoral sector. Now I think it was evident that the town environment was in some ways more dislocating uh, than uh, pe for people in remote communities. In town, alcohol was more readily available. There was more coming and going of different groups of people. Uh, family and community solidarity was more difficult to sustain. Ceremonies were no longer being held in town. 1970 was sort of the sunset of that period, and it became ever more difficult to get people living in and around town, out of town, to attend ceremonies elsewhere in the region. So into the town environment had been drawn a considerable number of families and persons who had experience of country, of ceremony, but who now found themselves relatively disoccupied given these changes in employment, in availability of alcohol and of money. So entering into this mix there then came the new era of land claims and much later native title claims, bringing with it a demand for certain kinds of knowledge that would contribute to research in relation to both uh, nearer and further locations. Now, when I first came to Catherine, there were two Aboriginal men who were prominent in town. And by that, I mean not only known to Indigenous people, but also regularly reported in the newspaper, regularly uh, known to non-Aboriginal people, and so on. Both of these men were non-locals. One of them was an outspoken opponent of alcohol use and abuse. Um, and he was very firmly committed to this, but he was also co-opted and regularly voiced over by the very conservative non-Indigenous uh, MLA who represented the area. And that MLA made it to seem as if he and this man were in agreement with, with each other, which they were not fundamentally in the way that they approached the issues involved. The other prominent indigenous man was also non-local in origin, though he'd been in Catherine for some years. He was an outspoken Christian, and he was really the only one in a town and region where there'd been relatively little Christian proselytization of Aborigines by either indigenous or non-indigenous people. So it seemed that the prominence of these men was related to their being seen to help manage Aboriginal problems. Now, with the beginning of the, of the land claim era, the native title era, I think other men who were around town and somewhat dislocated in the ways that I've described were brought more into the picture. 
they were not exclusively the, the ones who gave information and so on, but they had a role that uh, they could take up. The earlier uh, contexts in which, for example, familiarity <coughs> with country and ability to maneuver in it, uh, those were gone. Rural work was more abundant. The earlier contexts in which ceremony had played a community role were not completely gone, but ceremony was clearly becoming more problematic for people to stage. So um, these are some of the conditions under which I think those two things that I began with and, um, you know, could come to pass. I could get to know, uh, usually in a larger familial context, a lot of senior men and work closely with them on topics that people would have said you couldn't work on as a woman. Um, and secondly, I think a lot of uh, community level responsibilities were being pa passed to women in a number of these communities. So in conclusion, I would see these circumstances of traditional gender hegemony, change and diversification as coming together in ways that open up many questions requiring both ethnographic and theoretical consideration. Among these are the ways in which long-standing group internal hegemonies, such as I've referred to within the indigenous community, are affected by external internal power dynamics in relations between dominant and subordinate groupings. The implications of changes in those power dynamics for differences cross-generationally in socialization in both dominant and subordinate groupings. In other words, you could rephrase that by saying, how different are parents and children across these changes? The implications of changing valuation and devaluation of the, of the perceived characteristics of subordinate groups for the social health and engagement of emergent generations. And another last and perhaps simpler question one might ask is, what, has prepared, what prepared those Aboriginal women to take advantage of the changes that were occurring and move into the new social positions that they came to occupy? In closing, I want to say that my experience involved some close relationships uh, which were outwardly organized along lines of kinship, particularly with men as fathers, as, grand, as fathers' fathers, grandfathers, and so on. But as I've tried to make clear, I think those relationships were also underpinned, underwritten by cycles of these larger indigenous, non-indigenous relationships and changes in them. The resulting relationships that I had in that period ran counter to normative expectations on the part of researchers and ethics committees about gender separatism in research. I think this tells us something about the often large gap between research orthodoxies and their historical actualities. Thanks. Thank you so much, Francesca, for that. Um, <coughs> our, our next speaker is Professor Kalpana Ram. Kalpana, Kalpana is an associate professor of anthropology at Macquarie University. Her work brings together detailed fieldwork in India and issues of theory focusing on questions such as class, gender, women's movements in India, um, caste, and popular religion. In the 1990s, as her first position as a research fellow um, at the Australian National University, she built the Gender Research Centre with Margaret. After doing that, she has gone on to contribute largely to the growth of the Department of Anthropology at Macquarie University. We look very much forward to hearing about your presentation. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'll be as quick as I can, but it is complicated because I belong to two places, India as well as Australia. <laughs> so, and I've been reflecting a lot lately about the way in which political, broader political climate actually 
can either provide support for individual lives and the kinds of politics of emancipatory politics that we imbibe, um, including feminist politics, or it can corrode and erode that kind of support. Today, both the countries that have shaped my life, India as well as Australia, have a political climate that stands in, in stark contrast to what I was fortunate enough to have experienced in each of them when I was maturing <coughs> and imbibing, without always knowing it, feminist principles as well as socialist principles. Today's India, with its religious nationalist chauvinism and market-based developmentalism, is a far cry from the Nehruvian era that I was born into, full of optimism, full of charge at the end of a long anti-colonial struggle, which had mobilized classes sufficiently across the spectrum to make a huge pressure on the Congress party that had come to power to actually do something about gender reform as well as caste and class reform. That's what, this was despite the, the horrible pain and bloodbath of partition, despite all of that, the horizon was utopian. And caste was actually thought to be something that could be abolished in a few decades. Extraordinary. But the point is that it, that it was thought important and possible by elites and was fueled by social movements from below, particularly in Tamil Nadu where I come from, where uh, the social movement against caste and Brahmanism had actually, actually meant that reservations for jobs as well as education had been introduced by the 1950s and actually covered more than half the population. This was, this was something that was resisted vigorously when it was attempted to be extended in North, Northern India. A vigorous and broad-based women's participation in the anti-colonial movement produced a seasoned group of confident women in politics. And by the, by, by the mid-70s, the large group of upper-caste women professionally active in medicine and law and politics and academia had become leading activists and intellectuals of a resurgent women's movement, holding the Indian state to account for failing to live up to its promises of development, particularly around gender. And in academic terms, women's studies was born out of this history in India. Now, coming from this background to Sydney at the start of the 1970s, and assumed by my entire milieu to be heading straight for college, I was astounded when girls in the last year of high school that I had entered in Sydney's Lower North Shore signed up en masse for teacher's training. And when I questioned them why they were not even thinking of university, they told me it was so that they would be home in time for the children. These were kids, you know, 16 year olds. I was used to better prospects than this for women. <laughs> But in the headier atmosphere of Sydney University, my spirit soared as I walked straight into a staff student strike being held in support of teaching courses for feminist philosophy. Yay. <laughs> the next year, the courses were on offer and I was enrolled. And I graduated with philosophy honours and a thorough familiarity with debates in Marxism, Marxist philosophy, anarchist philosophy, feminist philosophy, as well as some lived experience of the burgeoning, intersecting social movements of Sydney at the time. Once again, social political environment was what supported and sustained what was happening at universities. There were squats going on in Woolloomooloo, protesting against the eviction of low-income housing, inner city, as well as rural utopias like Nimbin, and who remembers this, the feminist utopia Amazon Acres. Yes. <laughs> These were the sites of radical experimentation with alternative forms of living in 
in collective households <coughs> and relationships, some with men and others entirely without men. There were workers' movements going on way beyond unionism, as in the Sydney Builders' Labourers' Movement under Jack Mundy's leadership, which practiced a, a version of radical self-management uh, with workers voting on everything and placing green bans not only for environmental reasons but also for social and political reasons. I want to talk now about how I started to learn at this point about power and theory as a postgraduate. Um, it was 1977. I had decided it was time to reconnect with Indian debates and issues of class and gender. I'd already been involved in setting up a women's group in Sydney, which was basically to talk about issues about racism and colonialism within the women's movement. And it included immigrant women. It was called the Immigrant and Third World Women's Group. And, and so this had really been a vital aspect of sort of actually you know, exploring those kinds of issues. We were all from different kinds of, a lot of us were from different parts of South Asia, actually. Philosophy, uh, so I had decided to reconnect. Philosophy had no room for empirical inquiry. It did not refer to non-European philosophies. I had to move into social science. Now, my efforts to move into social science were, again, instructive of limits placed on intellectual labor. So sociology at Macquarie University took me on, but class and gender were discussed in terms of a modernity that bore no reference to a non-Western world. Apparently we were not modern or we didn't exist. To study people from my country, I had to move into anthropology, which I did as a doctoral student here at the ANU under Roger Keesing's supervision in 19, at the end of 1981. So my first lesson about the reproduction of power in and through theory took on almost a quasi-structuralist form as I moved between these disciplines because it was in the series of distinctions and differences between the disciplines as much as anything wrought within the disciplines that colonial forms of power and knowledge were being reproduced. So social movements meant that imperialism and critiques of imperialism, of more to the point, were in the air, but they left this division of labor of the disciplines intact. And this legacy, this, the legacy of this division remains an issue for anthropology. Working as I do with theoretical skills that are learned both in philosophy and in anthropology, I'm constantly struck by the effects of each ignoring the other. The Eurocentrism of philosophy cripples the critical development of its feminist philosophy because it spells an ignorance of other feminisms and as well as the lives of women in other parts of the world. Only token French anthropologists who are part of a European debate, such as Lévi-Strauss, seem to make it into the canon in works such as Judith Butler's work. Anthropologists certainly read a lot more of the philosophers, but anthropology as a whole continues to produce its theories of transactional individuals as opposed to individuals, homo hierarchicus versus Western individualism, partable persons, but no reference to feminist philosophical traditions of critique, as well as other kinds of alternative um, formulations of personhood that have come up within Western philosophy. So what this actually reproduces is a homogenized version of the West against which non-Westerners have to emerge as stark opposites. A scenario in which powerful feminist critiques as well as other kinds of philosophical critiques of the same thing, the self-enclosed, um, isolated subject, but those critiques make it clear we're talking about a hegemonic version of the isolated subject, and that's what the critique is aimed at. It's not just something called Western tradition that, that we're talking about here. So that critique is not allowed to play any role in what we produce. 
The questions set for the panelists included us to reflect on some aspect of fieldwork that made us reflect more deeply about the wider issues of power within the discipline. There's so many things that I could have talked about, including, including all sorts of things that turned my world upside down. I worked in a fishing community in Catholic, uh, in Catholic southern India, in Tamil Nadu, being brought up a Hindu, as an upper caste Hindu, growing up in Delhi, all of everything I encountered actually really profoundly challenged me about what I thought India was. But I'll just, I'll just, well, I have to speak of one thing. So I'm going to talk about something that kept surfacing for me in my whole career, really. And it was, uh, it was an irritant in this, in the Persian sense that it was a, it was a kind of a spur for thought. So, in my first period of work, which I've just mentioned with Catholic fisher people in Kanyakumari district, I started to research healing traditions. It was really a kind of respite from the far more exacting and sometimes very intrusive, nosy business of actually putting my Marxist agenda into operation because it meant asking people about the distribution of wealth and what I used to call the means of production. And people were pretty cagey about this, naturally. Um, and I really disliked having to push them. But they were much more ready to talk about illness and cures. And I used to turn to that with some sense of relief. I already had a genuine interest in this. Again, the women's movement had predisposed me to an interest in alternative ways of knowing one's own body, um, alternatives to biomedicine, <coughs> an interest in midwifery as part of women's <coughs> traditions. But I also had developed a very strong interest in my honours work in, uh, Freudian, in Freud and psychoanalysis, and I had been engaged in lots of debates that were going on then about Juliet Mitchell's work, Psychoanalysis and Feminism, which was looking at the unconscious as, a, as maybe oh, this was a good way to think about why patriarchal ideologies were so obdurate, so hard to shift. Um, so when I encountered in this new context a very frequent um, pattern in which women were diagnosed with spirit attacks, I started getting interested in that. And I followed its permutation into actual states of possession, which I was witnessing in shrines <coughs> dedicated to Catholic saints. Different age groups of women would behave differently. Adolescent girls were running around in groups, almost giddy with pleasure of whirling and tumbling and swinging around pillars. Older women, often much more isolated, seem to be in pain. The way it was understood locally is that this was the behavior that was a response to being brought into a place where saintly power were making these demons inside them restless and restive. So women were swearing and cursing and their hair was flying loose. But those who were diagnosing them and curing them were themselves women. And they too were possessed. But they were mediums for Virgin Mary and for the saints. And they took on different kinds of characteristics performing as each of these beings came into them. So possession was both illness and cure. Demons and goddesses both possessed human bodies. The demons were sometimes tormented ghosts of the untimely dead, but they could also be goddesses who were worshiped by local, local Hindus who were much uh, usually sort of agricultural laborers and fisher people. Now, I was very used to goddesses from my Hindu upbringing, but I realized I knew nothing of these kinds of goddesses who seemed just as liable to eat up a fetus as to bring fertility to a woman. And so again, this, this kind of thing really dramatized to me the, the limits of an upper caste habitus 
and, and the way that that shapes representations of India, and it changed forever the way in which, for example, I teach religion in India. So this upside world, upside down world of possession with the swearing, this ferocious strength, the exhilaration of the girls, all suggests the performativity of resistance to the disciplines imposed on them, particularly from puberty onwards. And the fact that there was such a strong association between women and possession also suggested all kinds of sociological connections between gender and possession, much of which I found was already canvassed in a vast <coughs> literature on possession and women, stimulated precisely by the women's movement. A great deal of this literature saw possession as a kind of safety valve from the tensions of patriarchy. Others saw it as a source of community in female healing cults. Now, I don't want to, you know, I, in my work I haven't, I haven't um, put aside any of these, but I was also interested in the local exegesis, which actually links the spirits with women's bodies, but unlike all of this Western theory, it takes possession seriously as a time in which it's not women who are there, who are acting, but spirits. So if I t took the path exclusively of a sociology of power, I would then be led inevitably to the question which has dominated feminist analyses as of so many analyses of power since Foucault, would, namely the question, is this a reproduction of power that we're watching? or is this a resistance to power? But the problem is that in the process of answering this question, I'm being required to deny the reality of spirits and turn them into entirely human constructions. So the rich literature that anthropology had produced left me and us with a polarized, dichotomized set of choices, either the native account or the anthropological account. So the old colonial fear of going native seems to be reproduced, not just in the distance that anthropological theory establishes from native exegesis and experience, but in this case, quite a sharp polarization around the extreme challenge. So when you get to an extreme challenge like possession, the, 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 um, it, it produces a particularly sharp kind of dichotomy. So in the last book that I wrote, which is Fertile Disorder, I think I found something of a midway between these extremes. And that inspiration came to me from philosophy, came from phenomenology, a strand of Western philosophy dedicated precisely to uncovering deep assumptions that shape Western traditions of scholarship, many of which I found were continuing unchecked into anthropology precisely because, because it relied entirely on the non-European for its critique. So I'll just read the last paragraph. Okay. Um, so... So basically, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm finishing by saying that fieldwork is a uniquely anthropological version of the power to disrupt one's own habitus and inhabit another. And I've done this both as a migrant, but that is a practical project with its own deep insights and limitations. <coughs> but in anthropology, it's more a provocation for reflection. But unless we make those reflections stretch and find allies and inspirations, in other disciplines will keep limiting our anthropological project and stunt the potential of what is innately an interdisciplinary and more profoundly a transnational project like feminism. Okay, our last speaker is Professor Catherine Robinson. Cathy is a Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the Australian National University. Her principal research has been in Indonesia, focusing on social issues of mining, everyday Islam, 
gender relations encompassing labor and marriage migration, adolescence, sexuality, and reproduction. Her contribution to the anthropological profession as well as Asian studies has been enormous. She was a founding editor of TAPJA and she, is, she was a former president of the Asian Studies Association of Australia. Kathy, okay, whenever you're ready. Well, this is, um, I just want to start with the women's liberation movement that Margaret already referred to. So second wave feminism or women's liberation grew out of the new left that emerged in the USA in the 1960s and this in turn was a product of the social disquiet and dissent associated with the US war in Vietnam and of course Australia's involvement. These associated political movements were concerned with power and inequality but they also had a phenomenological character, a concern with the inwardness of experience and of apprehension of the world in opposition to a world and a theoretical analysis that we were exposed to in universities seen as oppressive, mechanical, reductive and deterministic. And so this was very much an epistemic break. Coming out of the 1950s, the new left political philosophy was experiential, a practice. You didn't work for a power shift or a revolution, but set about living the life, creating the kind of society and politics that you wanted. And I encountered, this is me back in the day, women's liberation in, the early, in early 1970. At the same moment, I discovered anthropology. Returning to the University of Sydney after teaching in a remote indigenous community, I had a phone call from a high school friend to tell me about, very excitedly, about her encounter with women's liberation at a stall in orientation week um, and their political analysis of sex roles, which to us seems a bit simplistic now, but never mind. She said, I thought you would be interested. A light came on. As Sarah Ahmed notes in that lovely uh, book you referred to, once you become a feminist, it can feel you've always been a feminist. You begin to re-describe the worlds we are in. Um, and me and my school friend had been primed for women's liberation by a high school history teacher who in 1967 had urged us to read Betty Friedan's newly published Feminine Mystique and be aware of the need to do something for ourselves, like your friends, <laughs> um, before we married and had children. It's very hard to imaginatively return to the world we found ourselves in. Until 1966, married women, as Martha mentioned, could not become permanent civil servants. In 1972, only 32.7% of university students were women, whereas now it's more than 50%. Divorce was difficult. No fault divorce was only introduced in 1975. Domestic abuse was not a crime. It was considered a private matter. And child rape in families was a well-concealed public secret, as I later discovered through my feminist activism. Feminist, what we then call women's liberation praxis, rested on the ideas of consciousness raising, a phenomenological approach to understanding the political construction of ourselves and forms of social and political oppression of women that we, we discovered through sharing experiences with other women in our CR groups. We all had our CR groups. <laughs> Collective learning generally became an important part of our student political life. Apart from CR groups, for example, I was in whatever it was Not called. Not a lot of feminists. <laughs> no, and, and also a feminist uh, capital uh, reading group collective where we very s seriously read through our way through capital. My other life-changing <coughs> encounter at exactly this moment was with anthropology, which was also profoundly impacted by these political currents. Marshall Salins, for example, had invented the teaching at Chicago as a response to the Vietnam War. 
and his generation were rediscovering materialism in social theory. New left uh, politics, feminism and other forms of social critique questioned the canon taught in universities, which a couple of people have referred to. Anthropology's ethnographic reportage was also mined at that time by other disciplines, um, other feminist scholars, to reject assumptions of the naturalness of sex social division, you know, something that Margaret Mead had already, you know, muddled around with. And anthropology, like other disciplines, was subject to a feminist critique of its own forms of patriarchal blindness or androcentrism. And this, um, particularly for me, was significant in terms of um, looking at um, anthropology's approach to kinship and marriage, which my first year tutor had said to me were the life's blood of anthropology. I don't know whether it's still taught that way, but anyway. British structural functionalism, for example, analysed kinship and marriage as juridical norms that regulated social relations and provided order, particularly in stateless societies, whereas feminist critique focused on marriage as the site of the incubation and reproduction of gender relations. Um, uh, oops. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and also drawing on other um, left critiques of the time, um, marriage um, was um, analysed in, in terms of uh, the, the conjugal bond and the family were analysed as sites of personal life. Um, in critiques of capitalism, they were seen as a bulwark against the alienation of capitalism. And my first piece of feminist writing drew on these contemporary left and feminist critiques in critical analysis of marriage. I wrote an essay for my politics course um, in 1971, and in hindsight, um, in response to your provocation and thinking about the questions you raised, I realised this essay was a foundational moment for my developing anthropological scholarship. In 1970, when I encountered anthropology, the first year syllabus at Sydney had been radically redesigned by Jeremy Beckett, who'd been very much influenced by these, these changes in American anthropology, um, uh, with this new interest in material analysis, um, people like Wolf and Salins, challenging the prevailing paradigm of structural functionalism. Um, and also at the same time, and very influential for me, um, anthropology embarked on an auto-critique of its colonial origins, which were precipitated by accusations of anthropology's counter-involvement in counter-intelligence in American spheres of war. Um, and this controversy was hot during my undergraduate years, um, with some of our lecturers at Sydney um, being accused of um, being involved in counter um, in counterintelligence uh, operations in 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 uh, Thailand um, in the in the kind of um, orbit of the Vietnam War. Um, so these are all the things that are happening for me, you know, um, when I come back to university as a Marxist feminist. I was torn between my desire to become an ethnographer and struggling with concerns about anthropology's <coughs> colonial origins. I found a solution in embarking on my PhD research here at the ANU, focusing on a community in Indonesia that had been displaced by a multinational mine under Suharto's new order. And I began fieldwork in 1976. And my PhD thesis was this book, Stepchildren of Pro Progress, which was like a political economy um, of the mining town and the place of these people within it. 
The development of capitalist relations, I found, was accompanied by a rapid shift that was happening before my very eyes from uh, arranged to free choice marriage. And while this might seem a plus for women in terms of those mainstream feminist critiques, you know, we were really down on marriage. You know, that was one of the centrepieces of women's liberation political <laughs> critique. Um, looking through the, a political economy lens, which illuminated women's loss of access to economic resources consequent on mind development, I found it not so straightforward. You know, it really challenged a lot of my feminist, you know, these these um, assumptions about the nature of about the truths of feminism. Um, and I've continued since then um, to research the nutty issues thrown up by marriage in the analysis of gender relations. Mm -hmm. And for example, in this other book, um, the, the bottom one, the red one, um, one of the chapters of that book focuses on the way that different practices of kinship and marriage play out in different kinds of, of different forms of gendered power and power relations um, in different cultures across the Indonesian archipelago, you know, Bali compared to Aceh, that kind of thing. Um, but I've also continued to do research on a lot of stuff about marriage, actually, the public discourse of male-order brides, but also, more recently, I've been involved a lot with feminist, uh, Islam, Muslim feminist activists in Indonesia um, who are really focused on issues of child marriage. Mm -hmm. um, um, and that's another story. And I was actually invited to this uh, Congress Ulama, the, the, con the Congress of um, Women Ulamas in Indonesia in 2017. That's me um, in the front row there with the spotty, the spotty um, um, kurudung, that's me. But anyway, and this is with my friends from, uh, from uh, Rumakita, which is a, a, an Islamic women's rights group. Um, and they invited me to come along to Kupi and be a resource person in the session that they had where they came together to talk about what their possible um, approaches might be to uh, child marriage. And I'm very pleased to say that um, I did have some influence on them because they were mainly interested in textual analyses because there'd been a recent court decision um, which had accepted the conservative inter interpretations from... Um, uh, Muslim scholars, and I, I did a more sort of anthropological, sociological thing about well, what were the kinds of conditions around um, child marriage and mm -hmm. so on, and the report that came out of their big project actually reflected that. So anyway, so anthropology does have some, you know, <laughs> it, does, it, does, it does have a place in those kinds of um, conversations. Now, um, Collective practice and learning. Oh, and also I'm involved, I also work with Plan International Australia that some of you might know, and child marriage is also a very big focus for them. And also just generally issues about women's rights, like all this stuff about safe cities and, and so on. And that's, that's my other kind of continued kind of activism, okay? Collective practice and learning um, was linked to, linked to direct action. And as Margaret said, students at the University of Sydney demanded curriculum changes to em embrace emerging intellectual currents, um, like political economy, feminist philosophy. We knew what we wanted to be taught. We didn't want to be told anymore what we had to be taught. And Margaret's already mentioned the, um, the, uh, the, the course on um, the anthropology of women. <laughs> as a PhD scholar in Canberra from 1976, I sought out and facilitated different collectives, because that was our mode of being in the world. <coughs> and for example, I was involved with a group in setting up Canberra's first rape crisis centre. Um, I was in, of 
course, a Marxist feminist group, the Red Femmes, and a collection of scholars um, who published an edition, a Canberra edition of a feminist journal, Refactory Girl. And collective forms of actions informed the way that many, they have informed the way that many women scholars worked in the academy. I think that's really under pressure from the current sort of um, pressures, but um, a lot of, um, uh, you know, working together, publishing together, researching together. And um, as a PhD scholar, I had a very powerful experience where once when I was in Jakarta, I, I met um, I met with um, the Professor Meili Tan, who's an Indonesian scholar, and Hannah Papanek, who some of you may have heard of, who's a scholar of South Asia, but also, you know, sort of of the generation before me, if you can believe that there was such a thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and they said, and I always made a really profound impact on me, because I was just this hapless, you know, student wandering around and not quite sure where I was going or what I was going to do when I finished this PhD and all that kind of thing. But they said to me, now they said, your role is to train these Indonesian women as scholars. And I've always remembered that. And I think that was also reflecting this kind of sense of um, collective practice, you know, that was really fundamental to feminism. And so I just put up these lists of some of my former students who I've supervised here at the ANU. Um, Ilmi, who calls herself Professor of Feminist Anthropology, Effa, who's our new colleague. Um, Henny and oh, Indraswari, sorry, I spelled her name wrong, who's the Children's Commissioner at, oops, uh, as the Indonesian Human Rights Commission. So anyway, that's, um, those are my beginnings. <laughs> and um, my ongoing engagements, um, very much in what I see as my life as, as a feminist anthropologist. Thank you so much to all of our uh, kind of participants in this round table. Um, we now have the, the, the pleasure of hearing um, some discussants remarks from uh, Dr. Kali Schuster. So Kali is Senior Lecturer uh, in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology here at the Australian National University. Um, she uh, works on questions of economic anthropology, value, credit and debt, um, and, and has conducted fieldwork mostly in Paraguay. Um, her recent book, uh, Social Collateral, was published by University of California Press. Uh, I have to admit, it's a bit intimidating to find myself commenting <laughs> on this panel. A brilliant group of women, towering figures in the field whose work I've long admired and whose personal friendships and mentoring I've benefited from since arriving in Australia five years ago as a newly minted uh, PhD. So thank you all for participating, for sharing your beautiful papers, and for this collective conversation. I, of course, can't do justice to this collection of papers, either in their theoretical insights or the power of their personal experiences. So I'll restrict my comments, and also in light of the time that we have, which is um, brief. Um, so a brief anecdote about how the panel came together, and a similarly brief thought about where to go from here. Now, the inspiration for this conversation came about in good old feminist fashion from a consciousness-raising exercise. <laughs> a few years ago, Ben, Shiori, and I, as well as some others that I recognize in this room, were regular attendees at the Anthronode of the Gender Institute, which we had styled as a sort of reading-writing workshop, but which always included, in line with our shared feminist principles, 
a personal and experiential dimension of mentoring and dialogue. And often that sort of overtook the writing and reading workshop <laughs> of um, our task. Well, at one point, Kathy and Margaret began a remarkable discussion of feminism and activism during their PhD years, which morphed into a wider conversation about our position as feminist scholars. We realized it was crucial to tell the story and to name names, so to speak, particularly as feminist anthropology in Australia was shaped differently by particular cultural historical dynamics than the more widely discussed North American experience. So this panel is really a remarkable achievement in doing that. So this brings me to a short reflection on what this panel has accomplished. The provocation about the production and reproduction of theory and its rootedness in a fieldwork discipline has led to some brilliant and poignant insights. Whether shaking our certainty about sexual violence and its universality, or a fundamental questioning of what is woman, or the way fieldwork demands intersectionality of anthropology, let us take up Margaret's call to celebrate how feminism can transform anthropology. And with that celebration, I'll add one further observation um, about the panel. What comes through so strongly in the discussion is the long-standing feminist concern, not just with reproduction of theory, of sociality, of persons, but also a sense of obligation. This obligation is rooted in the political, the activism that it's committed to fighting for gender justice, and that readily takes up the feminism moniker, the F word. Sisterhood is powerful. For many of these scholars, that sense of commitment was developed in the field. Commitment to our long-term friends and collaborators, and systematized in work like Martha's contributions to gender and fieldwork, and Francesca's uh, long, long-term work on the shifting hegemonies and in indigenous settler dynamics. In fact, this is precisely what Danilyn Rutherford stakes out as the key to our discipline's kinky empiricism. In her words, an empiricism that is ethical because its methods create obligations, obligations that compel those who seek knowledge to put themselves on the line by making truth claims that they know will intervene within the settings and among the people they describe. But this panel, I suggest, pushes us to go a step further. Those interventions are not just within the settings and people of our field, but rather within our universities, within our teaching, within our collegiality, friendships, mentoring, and so on. Feminism has always been obligated, and its obligations reach beyond a particular theoretical turn in our scholarship. To the extent that anthropology is ethnographic, might we say feminism is at the heart of anthropological theories of the social, if we take obligation as uh, the key trope. By rooting obligations within the politics and experiences of gender justice, the papers of this roundtable force us to rethink feminism as the master trope of anthropology. So I'm more interested in questions that the panelists may pose to one another. So with that concluding thought that feminism may be at the heart of anthropology's particular style of obligation, I'll open the dialogue back up uh, for discussion. That was it, part two of Theory as Reproduction, Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia. 
Today's episode was produced by Dr. Benjamin Hegarty and myself. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange. Not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dadro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and more bro. Thanks for listening. See you soon. And until next time, keep talking strange.